Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Thank you everybody for coming. I'm glad we're starting promptly at 5.30. Thank you everybody for, for yeah, coming. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The, uh, the original plan was just to do, uh, with, with Glenn, but, uh, um, you know, sometimes you, uh, you think you're going to a Drake concert and, uh, Kanye comes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so Balji was, uh, had something and so we thought we'd, uh, bring him on stage too. So first off, thank you to, uh, Laura, uh, Austin and Longevity Fund for, for hosting us. Glenn, do you want to give maybe a one minute, uh, description of Radical Change? Yeah, and it evolves all the time. But I think the, right now I'd say the goal of Radical Exchange is that like our political economy is sort of uh, very old compared to the way our technologies have been advancing. Like we've moved from the telegraph to the telephone to video conferencing, whatever. And yet like the way we actually transmit signals of like value and identity across long distances has like hardly advanced. And Radical Exchange is trying to envision, build, um, design using rigorous academic things, uh, art, et cetera, ways in which we can have much more powerful political economies that enable democracies that actually make sense and property regimes that actually make sense. Awesome. So we're going to do a fireside between, between us three, maybe for around 30 minutes. Uh, and then we're going to open it up for, for Q and A. I was looking, uh, at a lot of Glenn's interviews and was looking for a unique take and I realized I didn't have one, and that's when I called Balaji and, and said, uh, hey, let, let's do something, all, all of us together. So I thought I'd start by sort of taking a stab at where I think you two uh, agree and where I think you two see things differently. Um, and then I'll either let you respond to it or, or just jump into a question for, for Glenn. So I think that you agree in your distrust of centralized systems, whether they are uh, big governments or, or big corporations. Uh, the, I think you agree in the power of open source and, and crypto, although Glenn, you have more skepticism there. You, you agree in the need to redefine how we think about identity. You agree in the, uh, in having an ethos of, of being radical and, and, uh, and experimenting. Uh, and you agree with sort of the broader ethos of, uh, of win and help win. Where I think you disagree is mostly on tactics. Uh, Glenn, I see you as uh, wanting to be uh, abolish private property as we currently think about it today, and I think Balaji is more open-minded. Um, <laughs> Glenn, I see you more, more skeptical of crypto uh, um, while, while you're excited about many of the cultural and community elements of it, and uh, Balaji is less skeptical <laughs> of, of crypto. Uh, maybe implementation details of how you think about identity. You're both excited about new cities broadly. Uh, Glenn, I, I see you as very against sort of CEO-driven um, societies and, and Balaji is open uh, to those among, among other options. I see you as, uh, while well, you agreeing on decentralization in principle, I think Balaji is more open to a more explicit meritocracy, um, that assumes sort of different interests and abilities. And, and Glenn, maybe that rubs you the wrong way, or maybe you see that differently. And broadly, Glenn, I see you as optimizing for sort of justice and, and reducing inequality and, and Balaji perhaps more overall prosperity or, or maybe a different way of, of looking at it. Are there, are there any reactions? To how I presented it. I think you frame the differences between us in a very libertarian-ish type of a way. So I, I would I would frame them maybe a little bit differently. And I'm interested in sure. Balaji's reaction to this. I think what I've increasingly come to think of is that 
one of the things that's at the core of my emerging belief system, which didn't exist at all in radical markets, is a much more sociological view of individuality than exists in a lot of the like economics, tech, imaginary. It's one where like there's sort of historically individual animals there's then social humans like a group of humans and we only get to individual humans like in the modern era and the way we get to individual humans is not by like removing social structure but by adding more social structure so that like what actually creates the potential of being an individual is the plurality of human organizations and the diversity of human organizations that really get created in the modern era and that attempts to sort of use some thing like the blockchain or the nation state was before that to like strip away community and like reveal the true individual are fundamentally confused and that it's by creating a diverse range of communities that we actually enable people to be individuals. So I would say, actually, I, I agree with a lot of that, but I, I would say, um, I also, some, I mean, I would quibble with some of your points or whatever, but I think the, the meta thing is I would hold it as the highest value choice. Um, that is to say, if you choose to be in a society that has a centralized government and that works for you, wonderful. If you choose to be in a basically a commune um, and, and people could actually make that work, wonderful. So long as you have the right to exit, the right to leave, that's actually part of the UN human rights kind of thing, by the way. Um, the, the, that is like the right to emigrate. It doesn't mean you have the right to immigrate like any society, you know, like uh, Harvard has does not have open borders. Now there's the New York times. You can't just go and walk in and get a job there. You can't just go and gain admission. So not every, every institution has open borders, but the right to emigrate, I think is a, is a fundamental right. Given that, and given a choice of, of many jurisdictions, then I think within those jurisdictions, you can try a, a thousand different experiments because people are not fundamentally harmed. They can, they can leave and they can choose. And that's my highest value. And all those other things are subsidiary to that, where I think here's how it optimize my optimal society, but I'm happy to try other experiments. The other thing I just say is actually um, a lot of Glenn's ideas. Uh, you know, I, I, I love the book. You know, I, I'm I haven't finished all of it. Yeah. I'm going through all the papers one by one, um, and I'm sure I'll have some mathematical comments. You know, and you'll you'll tell me I'm I'm totally off. But I love the fact that we're talking about these things. That we're in a a point of intellectual ferment where you can do empirical political science. You can do empirical macroeconomics. That was not possible before, not even like five or 10 years ago. And and so we're really just starting in the last five years. So that's an amazing moment for us. So I'm, I'm glad to be here for that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think um, in terms of differences, Albert Hirschman, uh, a favorite person of both Balaji's and mine and a, a hero of mine, talks about voice and exit. Balaji puts a lot of emphasis on exit. I put a maybe more balanced and maybe more importantly, intertwining emphasis on the two of them. I don't view there as being such a thing as meaningful exit without the simultaneous exercise of voice. And I don't view there as usually being a meaningful notion of voice that isn't coupled with elements of exit as well. So I don't view these things as separate or alternative options. And almost anyone who's focused on exit as the solution, I think is, is missing what's crucial to exit. So, so let me, let me give an example. So a lot of people would say, well, if I'm being oppressed, if they won't let me, you know, use weed, use some service, talk to these people, you know, I should be allowed to exit. 
But the thing is that it's almost never meaningful for you to exit completely on your own. It's only really meaningful for you to exit with a group of other people. And in fact, for almost any meaningful desire that you have, there's almost certainly going to be another group of people who are like in solidarity with you in that desire, if it's actually a meaningful desire that you have. So the opportunity to exit is really much more meaningful exercise collectively. And if you exercise it collectively, it has to be part of a democratic collective decision that all of you are making to take that decision to, in some way, exit. And conversely, in order to really effectively exercise voice, there has to be an element of forming a community that's separate and apart from the rest of the community in order to do that. Because as an individual, one drop in a vast ocean, your voice is not usually very meaningful. And that's one reason that people doubt whether voice is meaningful. But again, usually it's not just you as an individual. It's you forming a community of people who are collectively exercising that voice and threatening to potentially exit if you don't have that voice listened to. And it's in that moment that your voice actually becomes meaningful. So I don't view voice and exit as these separate things. I view them as actually only effective when combined with each other. So actually, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I make a few points on that. One is that um, I think in the talk, you know, I titled it, you know, the, or the old talk in 2013, Silicon Valley's exit, simply because exit was sort of an under-discussed kind of thing. But um, I, I, I agree with a few points. One is um, I think exit amplifies voice in, in a democracy because it shows that this feature that you care about so much, you're actually willing to leave, and that that forces reform. Um, for example, Stripe actually leaving San Francisco, everyone's like, oh, it's real. A $30 billion company is actually moving. And then, you know, like people realize they, they put an infinity multiplier on their their UIs and your, your terminology was very high, at least. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing is um, I've given some interviews in the past and maybe I, I, I've got a paper coming out on this. Uh, you know, like you may have written up something and if so, then like a, maybe parallel evolution. But uh, I call it crowd choice, which is coordinated exit. Um, and the idea being that right now we treat our ballot as just something to be aggregated. Um, so, you know, you have a preference vector. Uh, you, you have this you know, position on, let's say, abortion rights and this on gun rights and, and whatever. And then that is aggregated with other people in a jurisdiction. And then you have to, in the simplest form, just, you know, submit to the majority rule, right? Okay. And QV is a great, you yeah. know, thing for, for maybe fixing that part of it. Yeah. But let's say you do lose. Um, well, my, my thought is you treat your ballot not as just something to be aggregated, but as a search query across all the jurisdictions of the world, and you rank order them by which jurisdiction most satisfies your preferences. Uh, and then you group with the other folks, and um, you essentially bid with that other community, and you say, look, if we all move there, your tax rate is currently 10%, can you knock it down to 9.5, and we'll all move there, as just the simplest kind of example. And then these guys will calculate and be like, okay, I can discount it, but I'll make it up on volume. Boom, it's win-win, let's do that. Um, and I think that concept of crowd choice is going to be one of the biggest things that's enabled by um, kind of the next generation of social networks. That's kind of part of what I'm working on next. Have you um, read any of Ada Palmer's work? No, I should. She's a that. science fiction author, and she has a great series, which is set in a world where they've invented the ability to basically have like flying cars that are very fast so that you can very quickly move across physical jurisdictions. And at that point, it starts becoming just meaningless to have geographically bounded nation states. Yep. And so what ends up happening is people sort of subscribe to different nation state services, which then sort of like negotiate with each other the terms on which 
their members will interact with each other and people are sort of a member of one or more. Anyways, it, it, it bears some resemblance to what you're, to what you're describing. Absolutely. And I give, I give actually four immediate jumping offs to that. Yeah. One is I think, um, mobile is making us more mobile and law is a function of latitude and longitude. So if it's cheaper to change your X and Y location, it's cheaper to also change the law under which you live. Um, VR is ramping also. And when that really works, then you have like two really material ways to opt out of your current location just by like jacking into this virtual world or actually physically moving. And there's like, th those are kind of complementary axes. The third is I think in the long, long term, nation set, nation states eventually become commoditized providers of land and rule sets. Like they've got coal, they've got uranium or, or something like that. And they've got the rule sets, but otherwise you can kind of pick, pick among them. And then finally, I think the true borders of a community are no longer the geographical borders, but the ideological borders in, in, you know, social network space. Like, you know, borders are a social construct. And unless there's genuine agreement, like in the sense of you can't just do some physical test and say, okay, this is the border of, you know, the U.S. and Mexico or, or, or Spain and Portugal. There, there is something in people's heads. Yeah. Um, and, and you need to be able to give that ideological argument as to where my community ends and the other one begins. And that I think is where the true borders are going to be. Not so, so I think that's yes. And I think that there will always, as a result of that, be a new emergent cluster of overlapping different types of communities where yes. voice is necessary yep. because you won't just want to split off. And so like the way I think about it is flexible emergent collective governance, not either individual governments or rigid, historically determined, uh, you know, nation state democracies. Absolutely. And I think actually something that contributes to that is it used to be that one was, for example, a card carrying member of the communist party. That is to say membership was discrete zero one, you're in a group or, or, or not. Yeah. And, uh, and now, um, you know, if you hang out on a Reddit forum or, right. you know, there's, there's, there's some community you're part of once in a while, there's a whole continuum between like hourly active user and like yearly active user or what have you. Like there's a, right. there's a continuum of group exactly. memberships, right? And, and then that means you've got optionality. You've kind of got a foot in a bunch of different waters and you're no longer just like locked into one place. Yeah. And I view that as sort of like a, a duality. So coming back to this question of what is it that define the individual? I think what modernity offers is the possibility. So, so this, there's this sociologist Georg Zimmel who've really influenced me over the last year, who says that like you can think of all the social circles that you're a part of. And he says in pre-modern society, all of those social circles, your work circle, your family circle, your love circle, all these overlap very heavily. Mm -hmm. And so like basically you're not really an individual because there's so many other people who all their circles are basically the same as you. And then what starts to happen in modernity is these things start to separate out. So you start to get like your work circle only overlaps with your like home circle with you and two other people. And then, you know, all this sort of stuff. And so then you end up being like the unique intersection of all these different like social groups that give you meaning. And it's like that that individuates you. Interesting. And so you can then think of yourself as almost having like a mimetic code, which is made up of precisely these like quantitative measures of your commitment to these different communities. Right. And what makes you unique is the fact that that mimetic code is not the same as anyone else's mimetic code. So that reminds me of a few things. Um, one is uh, this concept of 33 bits of information, like mm. two to 33rd, like given 
seven odd billion people, two to the thirty third is about eight billion. Yeah. So thirty three unique bits of information you can like de-anonymize somebody. Yes. So sort of like this, you know, right? Yeah. Um, their thing is, um, and this sort of points in two directions. But you know, over the twentieth century, we had, for example, zoning of commercial, residential, and industrial. You know, because industrial stuff was polluting and had smokestacks and so yeah. on, and you didn't want that near the residential. And now we're seeing. I think one trend and then a second one. One trend is uh, to come together in like work lofts, like like the one we're in, yeah. uh, where kind of the the work and residential are sort of blended, the commercial and residential, the industrial and residential. Uh, but the second trend, and this is something I'm sort of spotting, and maybe maybe it'll happen, but I think it's kind of happening, is I think you're going to see a separation of people's earning names, their speaking names, and their real names, mm-hmm. um, because if you speak under a name, you can get attacked for that. And so folks, just like you don't keep all of your money in one place, you sort of separate your reputation among multiple yeah. names. And then that kind of leads to a sort of a schizophrenic, a fracturing in some ways of this, where this name is part of these N communities, and this name is part of these M communities. And you've been writing about identity a lot recently. How are you sort of, how do you respond to that? Or how are you sort of viewing what the... Um Well, I actually think what Balaji said is quite consistent with, I need to reflect on it more, but Mm -hmm. it's quite consistent with uh, some of the things that I've been writing recently. Like, so the idea is that what constitutes you is, let's say, the list of all bits relevant to you, the emails that you sent, the places you were, et cetera, et cetera. But as Balaji said, that's like unbelievably redundant identification of you. Like, Imagine that there's like a billion bits pertaining to you, or at least a million, and any 33 of them is enough to uniquely identify you. Right. What that means is that you're redundantly identified by like five orders of magnitude or something like that. And what that means is that in principle, there are like five orders of magnitude of people that you could be and still be unique, right? Yeah. And so like that, that's like a huge space of potential personalities that you can have while still being completely like not overlapping with anyone else. And the possibilities that opens up are really quite astonishing because it allows for a flexibility of sort of democratic organization that because, you know, democracies depend on this notion of unique people. But given that there's all these different notions of uniqueness, the number of democracies that you can participate in potentially is is enormous. I want to actually put my finger on that because the democracies depend on unique people. You realize this if you're running any kind of company that has any kind of user accounts, uh, any money at stake whatsoever, because if people can set up multiple accounts, which people will try to do, you realize, okay, I need an API to determine whether this person is real and unique. And that recurs in lots and lots of companies. Lots of crypto companies have that problem. Um, It's related to kind of a, a broader concept I have, which is the libertarian founder rebuilds the state. Okay. So meaning, you know, many, many folks who start companies are small L or large L libertarian and they, they leave, you know, their, the, the confines of their stifling bureaucratic environment, just go onto the frontier, go onto the tundra and many of them just die and they have to come back. Okay. But those who succeed kind of being built a lean to, they, they start recruiting more people. Um, and then eventually, they build a larger organization and then there's a critical flip where the most important number goes from your burn rate to your bus number. Yeah. You know, like the number of people who, you know, everybody needs to pull their weight and be exceptional at the beginning. And then suddenly everybody has to become replaceable. Otherwise you're not doing your job as CEO. Yeah. So you set up a bureaucracy that's bigger than any one person. 
And then you start realizing, oh, we need to uniquify all of our users. You basically start rebuilding aspects of the state. You want NSA-like intelligence on every single one of your users because some of them are committing fraud, some of them are harming other users, et cetera. And then conversely, of course, on the user side, uh, you want to not be spied on at all. You want to give the minimum necessary kind of thing. And so essentially being both system administrator and user is sort of like being both professor and student or both VC and entrepreneur. You kind of see both sides of the table and have empathy for both. Yeah, so this is the reason why... Uh um, what I think is so wrong about the standard libertarian view of the world is that it fails to realize that, like, it is precisely, I think, sort of the combination of, you could call it private property or this, like, extreme individualist thing with the fact that we live in a society that's, like, fundamentally social that, like, actually creates precisely the conditions that it is that libertarians, that, like, are objecting to. Whereas, like, if you actually start from the foundation of recognizing these social patterns and actually try to build for them, then that's, like, what opens you up to the possibility of this sort of fluid, overlapping, emergent identity that actually gives you the chance of being an individual in the first place. So It's interesting. You have a, you have a moral critique of it. I have a – I'm not disagreeing with it yeah. necessarily, but a, uh, I have sort of a utilitarian critique yeah. of classical libertarianism, which yeah. is as insightful as libertarian theory is on incentives, it massively understates the incentive for initiating aggression. Right? That is to say the non-aggression principle basically says, okay, no first strike. But if somebody first strikes you and knocks off your head, then you can't even retaliate. And so as such, uh, the ideologies that are preponderated are those that have some aspect of first strike. Um, you know, communists were definitely willing to first strike and, and so on. So if you're just premised on retaliation, you're not going to spread. That's kind of one critique. The second critique is basically that as, as with the crowd choice thing that we were talking about or coordinated exit, uh, you know, libertarians are all about live and let live and live and let live. I would say just from a Nietzschean utilitarian standpoint, isn't a winning ideology. Win and help win is actually, I think, more in line with at least how I think about the world, um, which is that rather than a bunch of folks sitting in you know, their home with guns, that's a fundamentally defensive thing. Galt's Gulch is a retreat. It's a surrender. Uh, whereas a, a tactical, like putting, placing your foot back to then drive forward with more energy, that's a little different, right? That's like, okay, we'll move to America, build up power there, and then come back into Europe like 100 years later. That's a little different, you know? Mm -hmm. And and I think um, that's where I, I'd say sort of the dogmatic form of libertarianism leaves me cold, actually, because it doesn't, it doesn't attend to some of these practical kinds of concerns. Uh, if the other guy is aggressive, if the other guy is cooperating, he's going to win. And so you need an ideology that gives you the maximum maximum possible freedom that is consistent with cooperation and, and deterring, you know, first strikes. Interesting. I, I don't know if Glenn is, is only making a moral argument. No, I mean, no, no, no. Yeah, in fact, most of my arguments have been utilitarian. Yes, I, I, it's just I tend to make moral arguments these days because I think they appeal to a broader sure, 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 than sure. the utilitarian totally. arguments that sort of are my job to make at some point. Right. Level. And an observational. And, and, I didn't mean in a bad way. Yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. But unpack it a little bit more. When, Glenn, when, when you find that you are convincing people of, like, oh, I'm not just an individual, or oh, private property isn't as clear-cut as, as yeah. it may seem, what do you find is most convincing, or how did you get there yourself? What's been most compelling to me in the last year is the fact that if you just think about almost all the consumption that we actually do, almost none of it is the sort of private goods on which standard economic theory is premised, and almost any economist would actually admit that. So it's like, we consume things in a family. Like most of the things that like make it nice to be in San Francisco are not like features of my individual home, but features of the ambient environment around there that make it desirable to live there. Um, and you can just tell that because you go get a great home three hours from here and compare it to like 
a, a, a hole in the wall here and you look at the prices, right? And most of the features of uh, what make me be able to like live the comfortable life I do are a function of the fact that I live in the United States. So two thirds of income inequality is across country. So you just see all these things and you realize like we are massively socially overdetermined. There's just like no possible way that we can sort of in this linear way that like private goods wants to do attribute back to the individual, to a, a sum of individual elements, like this emergent thing that is sociality. And it's like, once you think about that, you just realize that like everything that is like supposed to be about like why capitalism works great and like the utilitarian account of it, just like, it just doesn't add up. I mean, it's like, it's not what would actually could be driving what succeeded about the way that we're organized. And once you like move past that, then like sort of the whole edifice that lies behind sort of like utilitarian economics based justifications of like market capitalism just kind of like goes away and you start realizing there's this like enormous complexity of the system that we're actually dealing with. And like, how can we start to match that in the formalisms that we have to capture it? I'm, I'm actually more sympathetic to this by the way than you might like you initially thought. And, uh, but, but I think from maybe a different angle, yeah. which is um, as a system administrator, so you develop a new social network. You are essentially the one who has created the land yeah. um, and the usernames, for example, uh, twitter.com front slash Jack or front slash Jim. That's valuable virtual real estate that you've created and you determine whether it can be sold, whether it can be resold, um, all, all of these kinds of things. Moreover, if you develop any kind of like two-sided marketplace, um, you know, so, so like earn, we had, we had, we had both of these things. You, you find, okay, these small parameters that I'm setting centrally radically affect, you know, how much people are using it, whether they're sending it back and forth. The defaults really matter. It's not quote truly a free market. There's not quote truly private property because I'm setting these things centrally. In a sense, Bitcoin may be the first private property ever. Uh, that's a, a bit of an exaggeration, but um, in the sense of some, there's no system administrator who could just deprive you of it. Uh, you know, now there's personal property, of course, and there's, you know, private property in the sense of that which you can defend with your own, your own, own yeah. uh, you know, physique or whatever, your own guns. But I think once one embraces the idea that, okay, the Fed has system administrator access, it can, you know, freeze your account, it can move these things around, the state can do all these things, your company can do these things with user accounts, then you realize, okay, at least for those folks, those actors, uh, I think a lot of your things are very applicable, the auction everything kind of model. I think it's useful, though, to have a counterbalance against these system administrators, um, by which I sort of collapse both the tech CEO and the, you know, the Fedwire administrator, um, with something like Bitcoin, which then protects the rights of the individual against some kind of arbitrary thing like this. One thing that I found really interesting about what you said is like, so in econ, we have like all of these models where there is like the global administrator, the state, the social planner, whatever. And then there's like this market process where there's everything's a private good. There's no increasing returns. People are just these atomized market participants. And like, that's the image. But then like, it's kind of weird because like, actually that model is used to model the state. It's used to model individual countries. It's used to model the whole world. It's used to model platforms. We use that exact type of model for platforms. It's used to model companies. And you're like, hmm, there's like a hundred different like entities at a hundred different levels of resolution, which are all being modeled by like this global, incredibly important, like I'm setting all the parameters and then everyone's atomized underneath me. Like maybe the actual model features like tons of layers of like complex social organization, but like, no, we never 
look at that. We never think about like, how do I optimize at one layer for the fact that there's going to be rich, complex, and diverse social organization underneath and intertwining with me? And it seems to me like that is like the fundamental thing that's missing. And I, I just wrote this thing I'm about to put out where I call that ideology alone, atomized, liberal, and objectivist, naive epistemology. It's like a view that it's there's like, manner. it's a view that there's like, there's like the objective truth or the state or the center out there. And then there's the individual and there's like nothing in between. And that's just like such a confused view of the world that like it can't even stay consistent with itself within the same field. It's interesting because uh, towards uh, like someone at, I shouldn't say at right angles, but related to that, something I've thought about is if you take uh, Uber and Lyft, um, I think of them as really competitors in some ways to taxi regulators uh, and their yeah. drivers as competitors to taxi drivers. And so the real competition is actually between a regulator driver fusion, Uber, and another regulator driver fusion, Lyft, where these two provide star ratings and, and they regulate their platforms. They're actually better at this than the taxi medallions, which only have, you know, maybe an annual inspection or what have you. Um, you know, the GPS track every ride. They make sure that people can pay. Uh, they resolve disputes very rapidly. They've got lost and found services. They have bi-directional ratings. All those are far superior to the services that the taxi medallion um, you know, of, of New York even provides. And, uh, and yet there's still, there's still a market process because they're competing with each other. So these sort of fusions are kind of a, have aspects of both state and aspects of both private company. Um, and I think you're going to see more of those. Another aspect of this is really interesting is to change your taxi laws. Um, you'd have to move from New York to, to Texas, for example, or California to Texas to change your, you know, ride share, you just hit a different button in the app. We take that for granted, but we basically unbundled this whole bunch of laws, your taxi laws, your hotel laws, all these other things that were previously locked in on a particular jurisdiction, appified them so you can choose your regulator on a real-time well, basis. Well, so, so to make that even a little bit richer, think about the fact that Uber and Lyft operate across all these different jurisdictions. And there's a lot of common infrastructure that they're supplying across all those jurisdictions because there's algorithmic stuff. There's loyalty, there's knowledge of how the system works, et cetera. All those things are sort of this not quite global, but close to global public good that's being provided by these things. At the same time, you've got the local regulator who is providing a public good in terms of the environment. And I'm not just talking about the taxi medallions right. that's competing with them. There's actually the regulations that are on top of Lyft and Uber. And these actually make a huge difference because, so for example, in San Francisco, most people are exclusive on one of the platforms. In New York, almost everyone's cross-platform. This is a huge effect on how the system operates in a way I don't quite have the time to get into, mm -hmm. but it like totally changes the nature of the competitive environment between Lyft and Uber. And like, there's all sorts of features that like just don't work at all in New York that do work in San Francisco mm. because of the nature of the regulatory environment that's imposed upon them here, but not there. So you've actually got these like public good providers in different spaces, one in cyberspace, one in physical space, intertwining with each other and creating the possibility of competition or not. So it's right. just, it's like the, the, what's actually going on is like so poorly modeled by like this absurdly naive view of sociality as sort of being like, there's this one global layer and then we're all these atomized individuals. It's actually this incredibly rich intertwining of these things. And if we can actually come up with formal systems of value accounting that allow that to take place, that allow that like rich intertwining to like actually be accounted for and the like merits and points to sort of like accrue to the ways in which these things intertwine with each other, I think we can have just like vastly more powerful economic systems than we currently do. I think, I think, um, 
blockchains in the fullness of time will at least give us some of the ability there because just like, you know, six degrees of separation went from a party conceit in like the mid nineties to a data structure where you could actually go and, you know, the social network became a data structure. You could read, write, you know, pull it, analyze it. Um, the economy goes from this sort of vague thing, um, you know, with data, of course, you know, that, that like uh, Fred and so on put out there to a data structure, namely the blockchain, where you can replay every transaction since T equals zero. And so you could do is classify all edges. You could group them in this sort of multi-scale analysis that you're talking about, where you have not just two agents, the state and the atomized individual, but multi-scale agents and whatnot. I think your simulation starts to get quite complicated there. So, um, the, the one thing I actually sort of want to quibble with you on, yeah. and maybe, maybe so far we've had a love fest, maybe this will be a fight. <laughs> yeah. uh, so um, is, is the term public good? Because I think it is true. Certainly there's, there's things that the current states provide that are public goods, like police services, you know, electricity, not so much in California. Um, but um, I think that a lot of them are, uh, you know, I'm pretty, pretty convinced by public choice theory in, in general that I don't think that many of these regulations are today at least optimized for the consumer. I think they're optimized for optics and they're optimized for, for that, that, that person, you know, ascending to some higher regulatory position or, or getting headlines or, or, or something like that. I, I, I think very few of them are actually consumer protecting. So that's why I like, um, you know, I always hesitate when I hear public good just because of that. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. What I actually mean by public goods, and may, public good is not quite the right word, I, I, I prefer the word increasing returns, is any time when the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Ah. A- and the thing is that that is like, thank God, the default thing that goes on. Sure. Because if it weren't, like we couldn't do any better than we could do all living in isolated, you know, things out in the woods. And like, thank God that like we can get these benefits out of scale. Like public goods almost never of, of the type I'm talking about, almost never line up with the boundaries of historically defined, like geographically described entities that are like supposed to be doing public good provision. Mm-hmm. Like you think about the drug war. It's like this is determined our policies on the drug war are determined by like the the white majority of the United States of America and like the vast majority of the costs of that and the consequences fall on like black and brown people in the United States and in Latin America. So it's sort of like an, an issue should which should really be determined by sort of like black and brown people throughout the Americas is instead determined by like the white majority of the United States. Like what the hell does that have to do with anything? It's just like, it's just, it's an area where like the nature of the economy of scale or the increasing returns process is completely misaligned with what happens to have been the way that we like decided to arbitrarily chop up the world. It's interesting because um, I think like I agree with the skin in the game aspect, but just as a sidelight, my recollection, I may be wrong on this is with the crack epidemic in the early 90s, actually, the black community was pushing for more stringent laws at that time. And then yeah. they found that it overcorrected. Now we've got criminal justice reform. So sometimes, um, you know, things overcorrect and then you have to have to pull it back. And I think that's, that's probably right. Um, but, I, but I agree with the broader point on skin in the game on, on this. Like that's to say somebody who is affected by something should have a say in that. And um, too, too much of the time, that's simply not the case. I mean, the, the thing that I really find most interesting about the cocaine issue is actually not the um, over-enforcement in the African-American community, but the under-enforcement among wealthy whites. So like mm-hmm. if you actually sample the water supply 
um, of cities, you can determine where cocaine is being most used because it, it's very persistent in water. And most cocaine is used in the wealthy parts of cosmopolitan cities. And um, the like incidence of ending up in jail if you are such a consumer is like three or four orders of magnitude lower than the incidence of ending up in jail if you're, you know, uh, coming from the communities that you were describing. Mm. And the consequences that it has both for the, uh, you know, those poor communities, but also maybe even more importantly to, to, for my heart, because my wife's a Latin American political scientist, for the people who get killed in Latin America fighting the war to stop the importation of the things that are actually being consumed by the people who are like funding the oppression of the people on land. Well, yeah. And it's just, it's unbelievable. I, I think there's basically two optima on this. There's the Netherlands model where drugs are basically legalized. And there's a Singapore model where they, they don't do this catch and release kind of thing. They just like execute drug smugglers like completely. Now, you may not like that, yeah. but basically um, that, that has worked to keep basically drugs out of Singapore. Yeah. And, uh, and so it's just like an extremely harsh rule that is enforced very consistently. It's highly advertised. You get on a plane to Singapore, it says, warning, we will kill you, uh, like if you, if you bring in drugs. And so because of that, otherwise, you know, Lee Kuan Yew was like, okay, this is going to become a center for smuggling unless we take an extremely harsh view on it. So I think, um, what I, what I, like the U.S. does this also with healthcare. They kind of like the worst of both world system. Um, sometimes the U.S. falls into this like kind of bad region where you have the, the worst of the left and the right. Um, Glenn, you have a post on uh, why you're not a technocrat. And, uh, when you unpack a little bit more, uh, your problems with technocracy, and um, how we should think about it. What well, are I mean, alternatives? so first to define what I mean by technocracy, it's sort of the view that there is some relatively narrow community, usually defined by some notion of formal expertise, though it's like a little bit less clear if you think of the Chinese Communist Party, which I think is very technocratic, like exactly what that formal expertise is. But like, whatever it is, it's some narrow group of people who are trained in some way, who can sort of like design a better system for everybody else to live in. And I actually think the like whole formal way that AI is set up as a problem, if you read like the Russell and Norvig textbook or whatever, is like the essence of technocracy. It's mm -hmm. like, here's an objective function. We're going to design a system that just maximizes its objective function. There was, there was someone who's, I won't name the name, but a very prominent person in Silicon Valley who said to me, look, I don't understand all these fancy words that, you know, you guys are using social science words, but I know how to build automated systems. And let me tell you, you tell me what a good world looks like and I can build it, you know? And so that, that's sort of the technocratic attitude, right? And the thing that I, that I think is so wrongheaded about the technocratic attitude is that any technical system, no matter how much formal input it elicits from participants, so it could have them vote, it could have them take a survey, whatever. Ultimately, the, la the language in which the technocrats themselves design the system is going to be completely different than the formal input. Like, it's not like when we're talking about designing some system, we're like, Oh, Balaji, all I want to hear from you is like a number from one to a hundred. Sure, sure. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, no, I like, we have a conversation about it. Right? right. So unless you believe that like all relevant information to the design of the system is either held by the technocratic class and expressible in their language or is expressible in the like numbers that you give to like the users to like give their input, then you're like basically leaving most of the relevant information out of the actual process. Mm -hmm. And so like, if you don't think that, 
then I think you have to do what I would call design in a democratic spirit, which is that you need to focus as much on the way you design the like formal input that you give people the chance to give as you do on making sure the system is itself explicable, describable, reusable, critiquable, and like redeployable by the participants in that system who are then going to like make use of that tool. And that's precisely what AI doesn't do and what other technologies do. It's like, you know, the vacuum cleaner, you know, kind of knows what it does, but, but, but that's not what an AI is supposed to do. It's supposed to like do it for you. It's supposed to like optimize for you, not like be understandable and usable by you. So it's, uh, I have a few thoughts on that. So one is um, I think it is almost inevitable that a technocracy in the, in a broader sense arises. Um, And the reason being, because for example, code is only a piece of it. If, if I install software, I know on some level, a software engineer wrote this, but I think much more implicit is the ideas in everybody's head. Some political engineer wrote that in the sense of actually you open your book with this quote, which I also like, you know, many men who believe themselves to be practical are often the slaves of some dead economist. You know, the, the memes and the frameworks that are out there, uh, you know, a, a troll doesn't know it just like, for example, you don't know who your great, 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 great grandfather is. Neither do the trolls, you know, the yeah. memes in their heads have been like installed from many generations. All these political yeah. ideas ca- came down. Yeah. And, and so I think the folks who are really good at designing those memes are also a form of technocrat. They are programming human brains as opposed to machine brains. Yeah. Um, and I think like that combination is, 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 is something that's there. The, the other thing is that, um, like while I, I it's situational as to when this is the case. Yeah. Um, you've heard that famous saying, you know, if I asked my customers what they'd want, sometimes, you know, they would set a faster horse. Yeah. So simply doing bottom up all the time will not necessarily always get you that leap yeah. where sometimes only an individual can do that. So I, I completely agree with that. I don't actually believe in bottom up. Like, in, I mean, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if sure. I was, you know, so like right. I obviously believe in design. I think design is incredibly important. I think design with a democratic spirit, however, is extremely important. And like I would contrast the French and American revolutions. This is a contrast from Hannah Arendt, who's one of my favorite philosophers. Mm -hmm. So she says that, you know, the French revolution was sort of like, we want the following thing, like food or bread or whatever, like give that to us now. So we're just, and then like, however you're going to do that, no, that's fine. Just leave it to you. Mm -hmm. Whereas the American revolution was like, we want legitimacy. We want a legitimate system. So we're going to go off to the U.S. We're going to, like, over a long period of time, have people experiment with these local democracies. This is going to build up a system that, like, comes to pervade how people think about things and how they relate to each other and how they would choose to organize themselves. And then that system is going to get, like, better and more powerful and whatever to the point where it, like, makes the system from which it's spraying look stupid. Mm -hmm. And then it's just going to replace that system. So, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so that, that is like the, and, and, but of course, those ideas were designed. I mean, like the, the, those came out of the enlightenment, early enlightenment. They came out of, you know, Locke and whatever. Yeah. So, so it's not like they didn't, they weren't ideas that were hatched somewhere, but they went through this long process of sort of socialization and coming to pervade the way in which people interact with each other before they then were like the system. You know? So, so it's funny, you know, like the way, uh, the way I sort of think about the French Revolution, the American Revolution is, um, I think, and this is one way of cutting it, and it's it's not the only yeah. way by any means, but insofar as, 
you know, the French Revolution was like a pure left revolution, but the American Revolution was a balance of left and right. And so it was both all men are created equal and no taxation without representation. And I think you had both of those themes there where you had sort of the, the, the moral spirit, the zeal that, you know, the left can provide and sort of the, for lack of a better term, the practical substance that the right provides. And I think that if you overbalance on one of those two, you lead to something which is either like extremely narrow-minded and self-interested or extremely impractical and optics only. Um, another example of that is the startup itself, which it also combines both, you know, left and right. It's got the, you know, the insistence on disruption and the lack of hierarchy, informal dress. Um, you know, it's very international, F the man attitude, but it's also capitalism, it's technology, it's, you know, a, a market process and so on. It's that fusion, I think, where some of the best stuff happens as opposed to kind of overcorrecting on one or the other. I have one more question, then I want to open it up to the to the audience. You mentioned your sort of the alone uh, framework and that sort of uh, leading the whole sort of theory of economics to be sort of a house of cards. Where are you right now in sort of, you know, building a replacement uh, model for it or how are you thinking about alternatives? Well, so I, I think that what we need to do is we need to replace the, um, so basically like m the standard political economy we think of is built on basically two tokens an identity token for individual identity and an anonymous value token called money. And I think we need to replace that. So that's basically like a n-dimensional vector. It's like for every person, there's how much money they have. That, that's like a simplified representation of it. I think we need to move to something closer to an n by n dimensional vector. N by okay, n, 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 n by m. N, n by n. Yeah. So like instead we have a representation of the relationship that every person has to every other person in the network. Because like, like a David Graeberish debt kind of model in the sense. Yeah. Of I mean, sort of you can think of it as being partly inspired by Graeber, but sure. the, but, but the key, I don't function, like all this stuff. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's a lot of issues yeah, there, but right. anyway, but like the idea is that then you can actually represent the social relations that people have to each other. Because I think the fundamental problem of economics is not, like, how do you reconcile the individual self-interest with the common good? The fundamental problem should be, how do we have cooperation under conditions of diversity? Because the truth is, there is no such thing as selfishness. It's not even meaningful. Because given that so much, almost all of what we consume, it is consumed in groups in some form, what there really is, is either I'm super aligned with you in terms of the groups that we're part of, and there's no conflict of interest between us at all, or we're like really socially distant from each other. And then there's a ton of conflict between us because we're, we're different. And like mechanisms like markets that treat symmetrically the interactions between two people who are very close to each other and two people who are very far from each other are like really problematic and like are going to lead to all sorts of like issues because they don't actually overcome the fundamental problem, which is difference. And the fact that we actually are like very delighted to live in societies with lots of difference, but that it's hard because that's what creates conflict. I, I like that, and I frame I frame that, or, or I think about that in a complementary way. Maybe like you have your whitelist, which are those folks who are friends, family, the folks in your contact book, and so on. There's your blacklist. Let's call that first order the folks you block on Twitter, <laughs> um, and uh, and then actually the vast vast majority of human beings in the world are on what I call your green list, where the correct way to interact with them is not with you know like a handshake or the sword, <laughs> but um, but but a dollar bill. Right. In the sense of, you, you know, they're neither friend nor foe. 
um, they are somebody where there's a mutually, you know, like, like a valuable transaction. And so, um, so that's like kind of this huge area where current social networks are really more about the whitelist. Twitter actually does expand into strangers, but I think there's like a huge amount of that green list economic activity that hasn't yet been put online. Yeah. So I, I think the one, of, if not the fundamental problem with the internet as originally conceived is it was a bunch of whitelists interacting with other whitelists. Yeah. And therefore it sort of thought, oh, okay, like, and that's just going to scale. Right. But of course that, 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 like, it didn't, like, it was small and it was a property of things that were Dunbar, you know, 150 people small. And then like you get out there and it just like totally breaks down. And then of course you can have platforms come in and do their thing and whatever. And like, there's been a fair bit of that. But what we actually need to get back to is like, how do we actually build up white to like light gray to like slightly darker gray to like dark gray to like black lists? How do we actually have like a network of network conception that allows us to like do that? And that's the sort of thing that I'm working on to try to, to try to replace the standard. There's just like, Equally spaced atoms right. and, out and there. Paint a conception. bit more of a picture of what that could look like. What are some sort of concrete implementations and manifestations? Yeah. So, so I, I the the idea. I mean, uh, it can't really get into all of it here, but is is that basically a network? Like, you know, if you have a network with weighted edges, effectively, that's like a representation of those social relations. And then, if you can take that as an input to mechanisms, you can have mechanisms that are very different than like a, a traditional market would be. So, like. The, the typification of a traditional market, this is what I talk about in my book, is an auction. Auction is supposed to put everyone in the symmetric position. But imagine you have an auction for a piece of art. And two people are at the same office down the hall from each other. If they win the piece of art, they're going to put it into their office, which they walk each walk by every day. Then there's an art museum that they both frequent in the city they live in, also competing. And then there's some like indigenous representative from the place where the art was allegedly stolen from trying to get it back for their country to treat these four people as, Oh, they're just all participating in auction. They have some value. This is like the most ridiculous thing you can possibly imagine. Because of course, like the guy down the hall winning it is like 80% as good as me winning it from my perspective. The art museum is probably 40% as good. And the guy from like really far away is like worth zero. And so if the auction doesn't like treat the social relations between these people in a way that is like meaningful, it's like missed most of what's actually going on in the design problem. And so like, I think the problem is that like money and like individual identity as like markers just like don't have the informational content that's necessary to do design for like most of the problems we care about. So let me give you another example of this, a yeah. uh, different example, the cap table, something I think about a lot. Yeah. So, you know, the, the cap table, the table of all shareholders in a company, arguably, you know, the most important data structure in Silicon Valley. Ha ha ha. And, and the reason is it's what built Google and Facebook and so on. It aligned all these, all these people behind it, you know, as opposed to like a skip list or whatever other data structure you might have in, in CS. So here's, here's the thing that I thought mapped to something you were saying. Whenever you're doing anything complicated in a company, like if I'm helping a founder through some complicated financing or something like that, um, they've got, he's got rows in the cap table and certainly he's got how many, you know, seed, you know, common 
A, B, C shares these people have. Uh, and he's also got the corporate charter, which says, okay, what threshold do you need? But the thing that's not in the cap table, but it's critical is his relationship or her relationship with every one of those rows, because that is in their head. And then you need to actually encode that as like, okay, I'm on good terms. Okay. I haven't talked to this person a lot. Okay. Let me warn this them. This is my brother. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So you've got like all of these kinds of, uh, of relationships. And, uh, and then what you do is, you know, frequently you'll, you'll put like a plus two, a plus one, a zero, a minus one, a minus two for how warm or cold they are on something. Then you map that out and you've got, okay, I've got 72% of series C, but I need, you know, more of series A. And then you work on getting the minus ones to pluses. Uh, and so that's something where there's actually social information on that edge along with the, um, economic information. The social information is often less written down. Yeah. Well, and the thing is that, even there, that's still sort of n by you know five or something like right. you're adding. But the thing is, like actually, to to get to get the thing to be in to get a voting system that would actually make sense at some level, it needs to be n by n because like think about quadratic voting. It's great, right? You sum over the people, this intensity of preference thing, whatever. But that's really not quite right because the thing is like what you want to know is not really like okay, so what's the sum of the intensity of preferences, but like. These people are really similar. They all like this. Okay, well, that gets some points. But like this other person who's really different likes it too. That should get like way more points mm -hmm. because like that's independent information, yeah. right? And this other stuff is all just like almost perfectly correlated with each other. So like that information about like how these different like, you know, sort of data points are actually related to each other is like so important and it's totally messed. You might even call it, if it's valuation in this form, you might call it eigenvaluation. <laughs> exactly. Right? No, it, no but, it, uh, but, it, but it is actually. So like the thing is like the way I think about it is that actually, you know, so quadratic voting, it takes the sum of the square roots of the money that people contributed. Mm -hmm. But like this, the elements in the sum are individual people. But the truth is really there's like an eigenspace out there of like influences on those people, yep. which is actually what you want to be taking the sum of the square roots in, not not in the like direct space. Can know? I ask you some dumb questions yeah. on quadratic voting that you may have already answered? I, I, A few thoughts, but one was uh, I didn't see in there, and again, maybe in one yeah. of the papers, um, the secret ballot concept. Like yeah. that is to say um, people putting their votes out, typically um, if, if those votes are public and they're enumerated, uh, you know, like, like, how did you think about that? Uh, so there's, there's a nice cryptographic paper about that right. by, um, Commit reveal. actually like, uh, from RSA, so uh, Ron, a, Ron Rivest. Yeah, he has a, a nice technology for that. Oh, got it. Okay. So, cause yeah. if there's a um, disutility to revealing your vote, then that could be an extra term. Yeah. And you can actually stop people from revealing it. There's, there's both physical cryptographic techniques and, uh, equivalents, uh, that are computational. That okay. Can use for that. All right. Cool. Yeah. I want to open it up to the, uh, to the audience. So just say your, your name and, uh, Ask the question. Uh, Julia. So uh, Julia asked, uh, what would we change about property law? What I would change is I would allow I would allow for more different kinds of system administrators to experiment with different kinds of property law. For example, um, if you had a Twitter 2.0 where usernames could be bought and sold in a free market rather than just being first come, first serve, I'd like to see that experiment. Um, if you have something where the earlier you sign up for Facebook, the more crypto you get. Um, so the early adopters who shared it virally get more and they have maybe more votes over whether someone is deplatformed or not. Uh, I'd like to see that experiment. Basically, I'd like to see a lot of different experiments in property law because, um, I think there's lots of things that work in practice, but not in theory and vice versa. Uh, and I, I concern myself in empiricist on that. 
I think uh, I agree with a lot of what Balaji said. I think as a matter of principle, broad level, I think we have to move towards, and I, and by the way, I think actual property law as it actually exists rather than how we imagine it is actually more similar to this than like um, the way we imagine property law to be is. But I think we need lots more partial overlapping, non-exclusive, non-absolute property rights where there are, where everything is sort of like belonging partially collectively to many different layers of ownership and whatever. And that's not quite what's actually described in the book. It's in the book. It's still like this very, like the individual has a share and then the collect, the collective has the rest. But I think like the reality is what we actually need is like multi-layered, rich, overlapping, partial control and whatever. And that needs to evolve in a way that like actually makes sense to people and that they can like process. So how that's actually going to work out, as I said, as Valaji said, it's like going to be empirical, but I think like the, the basic principle of like trying to move to this like richer overlapping sense of ownership is, is, is gotta be the direction we gotta go. Um, when, uh, the most uh, powerful idea in your book for me was quadratic voting yeah. because it was just so practical. Like I went back to my investment firm and said, hey guys, this is the way we should be saying, <laughs> like this is what will lead to smart decisions for us. And in that vein, I was um, just curious, like if you took all the different insights you've had and said, hey, for um, us who aren't spending all our time investigating these, we were going to look at what we could actually action or what's actually applicable or that we can take to our organizations or our own lives, yeah. what, what would you suggest? Is the- so, so the question is like, what's easiest to apply and, you know, biggest near-term impact of the ideas that we've been playing with? I would say uh, probably of the things that are like really ready to go now, quadratic voting, number one, quadratic finance, number two, quadratic finance idea I developed with Zoe Hitzig and Vitalik Buterin that I now actually think is just a application of quadratic voting. I think I figured out how to make it just like a, a special case, but in any case, it, it seems different and it's a way of sort of funding organizations um, based on matching funds from a central part. So I think that's very applicable within companies. If you have different divisions trying to cooperate, you can, you can use this for that. Number three, I actually think that the like cost Harburger tax salsa idea is quite applicable um, just for like managing assets, like managing Teslas, like rather than selling them, you could lease them out using that sort of system. So I think that's quite useful. And then there's stuff that's like useful at a more like political big level, but I'm sort of focusing on more the like corporate side, because it sounded like that's where your question was coming from. Yeah. How do you, uh, sorry, how do you overcome collusion? Yeah. So, so Suna asked a fabulous question, a critical question, which is like, how do you overcome collusion in quadratic voting? And like the obvious point about that is that like, if, you know, if you have the sum of the square roots, like two people could do better rather than by like, um, you know, one voting negative 10 and the other voting positive 10, both voting zero, because then neither of them has to pay for it. Right. And I think that my basic answer to that is, so you don't overcome collusion and quadratic voting. That's not really possible because people, because most of like social relations are not actually collusion. They're just social relations. So like if we're husband and wife or, you know, wife and wife or whatever, you know, or 10 people who like all live together, 
Of course, we're going to be like caring about each other when we make a decision, not even about collusion or even non-selfishness. It's just like if one of us does well, the other is going to benefit from that. Like most consumption is not private. So it's just like not even meaningful to think about people as these completely separated entities. And the whole like, quote, problem of collusion results from thinking about people as these separate, equally spaced atoms who you just want to have make independent IID decisions somehow. But that's not like how any human being lives. So like what we actually need eventually to do is to move beyond that whole substrate to a system that actually accounts for that stuff and build mechanisms that are, is based in that space. And that's going to look different than quadratic voting is going to look. That said, is quadratic voting like better than like one person, one vote? I think in like almost every circumstance, the answer is yes. Because one person, one vote is like even more absurdly based on this notion of like, there are individual human beings and they each have one unit and they just put their token in this box or they put that token in that box. So that doesn't mean there's like no cases where quadratic voting is going to work worse than, but I think like almost everywhere, like one person, one vote is like even more extremely crazily in that direction. And quadratic voting starts to overcome it, but definitely doesn't overcome it fully. My, my immediate thought on that, by the way, is uh, it might be interesting to look at under, so you've got different distributions of who has what votes. And if you had a block a voting block that did collude and voted as one, um, like what size does that block have to be to always win and have interests that are disaligned with the rest of society? I think that would be like an interesting angle of analysis. You probably give me yeah. So we have, we have a paper about yeah. that, and it and it you know it turns out like the block has to be pretty big to really like. But mm-hmm. but the thing I like realized is like that was like my sort of almost defensive answer. But like ultimately, I don't think that's that satisfying because it's sort of like well, it's true that that. Like, um, if that's like one group that's trying to collude and dominate, they have to be reasonably big and whatever. But like, ultimately, the problem is not that. The problem is that like the whole system is missing the fact that there's going to be little pockets like that everywhere. And that like, you're not really going to get like the right result out of a system because you're, again, you're probably almost certainly get something better than like something ridiculous, like one person, one vote. But like, can you actually get the right thing by like taking more of this into account? I think you can do a lot better for sure. Yeah. And is our, our non-individualness sort of a, uh, as you just sort of describe it, a function of the current limitations of technology and in the next century? Is that sort of an ideal that we will uh, reach closer to uh, o- over time? Well, I think, again, like, if you think that, like, individualness is this, like, state of nature in which we were born, which was awesome, and we're trying to get back to that, you might think that it would go in that direction. Well, maybe not back to that, but it just tends to be where we're going. Well, I I think, like, what will happen is we'll get increasingly socially complex, and that will make each of us more and more an individual than we've ever been before, because the more types of sociality that exist, the more possibility it is for us to actually be unique. So I do think we'll get more and more individual. But I think the way in which we'll get more and more individual is by allowing diverse social organization to flourish and therefore us to be individuated by all the different ways in which we participate in sociality. So the goal of getting more individual is realized precisely by allowing the process of creating social groups to be more fluid and democratic and rich and so forth. And just very practically, a hundred years from now, are we having like hundreds of Singapores and Israels and Hong Kongs and Dubais or... Or does it look, how do you, how does that sort of manifest? Well, first of all, I don't think that like physical space is necessarily going to be the main thing in the future. I think we'll have tons of different types of transportation technology. I think you'll have 
like there's a wonderful paper by Joe Lamke, someone who's involved in um, the radical exchange movement who's an urban planner who like describes that as you get new transportation technologies, you get like new like clusters emerging that are sort of based around the optimal distance to go with that transportation technology. So like you don't walk more than like, I don't know, 10 blocks. And so you have neighborhoods and you don't like take a scooter more than a certain amount. So then you have like sort of super neighborhoods and you don't take an airplane more than a certain amount. So you have like country, you know, this is like the sort of thing. And so like, as you get more technologies, there will be like more different levels of those sociality. And of course there's non-physical versions of that which have to do with like social distance and whatever. And these create these like multi-scale fitness landscapes in which all these different types of sociality flourish. And I think that it will be like the intersection of all of those things. That will be the relevant thing as more of those things proliferate. I have, I have sort of, I agree with a lot of that. I would also though say, I would say um, social media and cryptocurrency are going to cause unbundling and rebundling of nation states um, in the sense of, Basically, folks who live within the same physical area no longer agree with each other. They agree with their, you know, other ideological members from different countries online. And eventually, it's going to result in a huge amount of migration and churn as, as what we currently have as borders change. Um, the close analogy might in some ways be partition, hopefully without the violence. But, like, that was, like, something where ideology is sorted geographically. Um, and I think, I think we may see much, a lot of that. You both talked about... Uber is an example of unbundling governance from land. There's other examples, perhaps Amazon and commerce. Is there other places that you think that the laws or the ways in which we're regulated are currently done by land-based governments that should be done by perhaps some other type of governance or protocol? Yeah, I, th I think actually if you look at every large-scale profitable – or not every, a lot of them – a lot of profitable entities, cloud entities, turn out to be cloud regulators. For example, Amazon has star reviews and reviews of the reviewers. Uh, PayPal has, you know, anti-fraud. eBay has star ratings. Gmail has spam filtering. Apple has reviews in the App Store. And you actually start going down the list, and it's hard to find a scaled, you know, e-commerce marketplace or, um, or really any service where humans interact that doesn't have some form of reputation and review. Um, and so in a sense, these tech giants have already become good at managing humans and all their foibles and kind of these automated systems and setting up these rules. Um, I think that one of the big frontiers for this, maybe an obvious one, is is crypto with smart contracts and, and whatnot. And I think where that's going to colonize are niches where uh, those contracts were, you know, too expensive to do, too international to do, too, you know, simple to do, like lemonade stands or complex cross-border things or or things like that. And then over time, um, they're going to eventually be sort of back-recognized into law um, in the same way that, you know, eventually the RIA made its peace with file sharing because it couldn't stop it. Uh, so th those are the kinds of things I think about. So uh, maybe this will make me sound even more extremely libertarian than Balaji in, <laughs> in one example. But I would say like in the medium to long term, like I don't think there's almost anything that like it makes sense for nation states to do. Like seriously, like what is a nation state? Like what the hell does that have to do with anything? Like maybe nation states would have the role of like preserving the historical landmarks that are associated with that nation state as a historical entity because like nobody other than the people in the, but even that's probably not true because like lots of tourists like to come and like see like American. So I, I'm not even sure that's right. So like, I, I think there's almost nothing where like the nation state is the optimal, like public goods governing entity in the near term. What I would say, some of my favorite examples are data governance. 
So like the patterns of like data being used to make machine learning algorithms or to learn, you know, like this has nothing to do with geographic boundaries. It's like, that's crazy. Another example uh, that's related is not Nadia's uh, Eggball is actually in the audience today. It's work about, you know, open source has really made me think about like the governance of all the protocols that we use. That's another area where like nation states make absolutely no sense. And there's like no funding that's kind of, it's just, it just doesn't line up. And then my third example would be environmental stuff. So it's like, you think about how much violence nation states have done to environmental features. It's like you draw the line on the map somewhere and it's like the river doesn't know that. The river just goes through. And then it's like the Amazon River. It's like there's a like tiny minority of the population of Peru, um, you know, Brazil, et cetera, et cetera, that live right along the Amazon River. So there's this like small group of people within each of like five different nation states that's getting like completely screwed over by the tyranny of the majority and by the fragmentation of the nation state. And it just doesn't line up in any way. So like you need a nation of the Amazon. You need a nation of... Um, you know, SSL, you need a nation of, like, that, that, that's what we need to start having. Yeah, so, Jacob, uh, the discussion of technocracy was super interesting. I'm wondering to what extent you each think of it as a technocracy as a question of aligning incentives of the tech, technocrats versus gathering information. And could you improve the incentives by having, like, retroactive votes after the technocrats have implemented the policy? And Samo, one you ask yours too, and then we'll have them answer. Okay. For, for nation-state skepticism is, is quite welcome. It's been overemphasized for a while. And I'll point out the nation-state was already over by 1945. Right. So the United States and China and more empires. So what do you think of empires? <laughs> okay. Uh, question number one, is technocracy primarily about disalignment and incentive of the technocrats? And number two is uh what do, what do we think of empires do you want to start sure sure yeah so um so with respect to technocrats is the issue their lack of economic alignment or is that what we need to optimize versus uh collecting feedback better i, I think was, was the question i think it, it it's it's all of the above but what i always keep coming back to is so long as you have a choice uh, over who is to govern you actually really let me be more precise I think there's two different things you need to optimize in a society. The first is sort of, let's call it the path of the citizen. And the citizen, I think, you know, vote with their, their ballot, vote with their wallet, vote with their feet. I think that's important that we have all three options there, that they can choose among their leaders. And the second path is the path of the leader. And often in like conservative societies, they don't have a path for like an ambitious young person to become a leader. And so that leads to is like a bubbling up, then it becomes revolutionary energy and, you know, things are thrown off. And uh, what's great about the whole startup world is it takes these ambitious young megalomaniacs and it puts them into something where their, their actions are actually mostly pro-social and, and lets them create things that are positive things. Without naming names, for example, there is a prominent tech founder who was a huge email spammer in college. Uh, and has now become a tech billionaire. Um, and uh, and basically, he, he built something that many of you have used. It, it's almost like reforming a, a criminal. And, uh, you know, it, it's actually, you know, like the difference is a, a criminal breaks rules in order to destroy. An entrepreneur breaks rules in order to build. So that path for leaders is also important. And I think if you've got both of those two, where you have a pro-social path for leaders and you have a path for, quote, citizens who don't want to take that level of risk, I think you can have something good, but what I come back to is the choice for both. You need to have a choice for both. Technocrat and then empires? Yeah, and so an empire. So um, if I was to restate uh, the question is basically, 
nation, the nation state itself is sort of obsolete in the sense of since 1945 or thereabouts, we've had the U.S. empire, the Soviet empire, you know, the, the Chinese quasi-empire in, in terms of its border area and so on and so forth. And uh, I guess what I – what do I think about that? I think um, countries like Singapore, Israel, uh, Estonia, and then China is a big exception that proves a rule – are the kinds of things that I expect to do well in, in this century, which, you know, those countries are not empires. They are nimble. And I think just huge quantities of people are going to be a disadvantage because scale causes disalignment. That is to say, it's much easier to get, obviously, to get one person on the same page is trivial. To get two people on the same page is doable. Ten is harder. A hundred is harder still. You can almost envision yourself being at the front of a long procession. And if you're, you know, running a company, for example, if you radically change direction, it's like a snake, which kind of goes like this. It takes time for those people to catch up to where you were. If you keep changing direction, there's folks who are still executing the plan from like three turns ago. Now, you take that at the scale of an empire, and it's just very hard to lead large numbers of human beings, especially any kind of shift whatsoever. Whereas you can be much more nimble if you have kind of smaller groups. So we're already seeing this at the corporate level. You know, Hewlett, you know, HP broke up. It would have been hilarious if they called themselves Hewlett and Packard. They didn't exactly do that. Um, you know, eBay broke up into eBay and PayPal. You're getting these kind of frictional forces that are, you know, or rather centripetal forces are breaking these, these companies apart. Uh, and I think scale is actually becoming a disadvantage in this century where it was an advantage last century. Um, and so I think like empires are, I mean, the, the one exception is China because they actually might be competent enough to keep the whole thing together. But I think for the most part, scale causes disalignment. So on the question of technocracy, I don't, think these days that I really that, that I really see as much of a distinction as I used to between incentives and information. Because if you have this like alone view of like equally spaced atoms and then the whole, then like there's a very clear distinction. There's like the individual incentives and then there's like the information that should influence the whole decision. But if you have this other view where it's like, well, everybody is like sort of not selfish, but they're partial to their you know, perspective and causes, then like the distinction between information and incentives really starts to blur because like, well, are those economists just being selfish and like serving the economists or like, do they just genuinely believe in like that particular worldview, which is like super narrow and based on like this formalism that they have that like thinks that like they're the most important people in the world and like that they're the only ones who know anything that every sociologist and anthropologist and like person on the street is a complete moron. And that's the only reason they don't understand that like capitalism is the greatest thing ever. Like, you know, I, I'm not even sure that there's like a, there's that clear of a difference between those perspectives. And so I don't think voting can really solve the problem because the issue is really about like the fact that voting itself is a super thin formalism which like only works under very limited assumptions. We've been talking about all the problems with voting. And so like, actually you need to have the conversation and the openness to that, like more unstructured type of feedback that like only making things clear communicatively can do in terms of empires. I think like the, my fundamental issue with empires is that like what we want as much as possible is like a network of networks that builds from the bottom up that has that like rich information rather than a single system that comes in and imposes itself because inevitably that leads to like everyone is this uniform equally spaced atom from the perspective of the empire and so like all the i mean well-constructed empires try to avoid that as much as possible to the extent that they can be built as networks of networks obviously they'll be better but like the 
natural imaginary of empire is like conquest and imposition of a system, which then wipes away like a lot of the information that could have been built up from the bot from more bottom up type processes. So speaking of empires, Balaji, do you want the last word? Uh, sure. Well, so I'm, ex uh, there's a there's a website I've heard of that you might want to go check out if you want to just go and sign up there and maybe learn hear more later. It's called Nakamoto.com. Um, so just go put in your email there and you might might hear some interesting things in the future. So awesome! Uh, please give a huge round of applause for Balaji and, and Ben. Sure. Again, if anyone's interested, check out Radical Exchange. Uh, we love to have all sorts of people involved. It's a social movement. So. But buy his book also. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah. Thank Great. you. Yeah, Thanks. Fantastic. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.